Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. Hey everyone, Chad McCaffrey here, back with another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. On this week's episode, I sat down with Jacob Morgan. Jacob is a best-selling author, a futurist, and consultant on the future of work. In this episode, we talked about his book, we talked about change management, transparency, employee engagement, all kinds of really awesome topics related to HR and organizational design. I know you guys are going to love this episode. He's an awesome guy, lots of great wisdom around building organizations. That's it for me. Let's jump into the conversation with Jacob Morgan. Jacob Morgan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, today we're talking about the future of work, a topic I'm extremely excited to discuss with you. Um, But before we get into a lot of the main meat of the conversation, why don't you just provide everyone with a bit of background on you, maybe the origin story, how you got into the future of work, and really what you're focused on today. Sure. So um, my name is Jacob and I'm involved in this area around the future of work. Uh, It's a space that I got into around eight to 10 years ago after having bad jobs working for other people. And I just became fascinated with understanding how the workplace is changing and what the future of work is going to look like. And I've been doing that ever since. And so today my time is split between a couple different things. Uh, So first I had a book that came out on the future of work at the end of 2014 So I do a lot of uh, speaking engagements at organizations and conferences around the world, kind of discussing these themes around the future of work. Uh, The second, I do thought leadership programs for various organizations that want to work with me on webinars, white papers, ebooks, stuff like that. Um, You know, typically vendors that want to educate their customers and prospects around these types of things. And then the third is I run something called the Future of Work Community, which you can find at fowcommunity.com. And it's a collection of, I think we have around 60 brands right now from around the world that come together to explore what the future of work is going to look like. It's a community. We host two conferences every year. And so uh, my time is split between those three things and doing my own content creation with articles, podcasts, videos, etc. You're a busy man. I try. I try. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's the that's the into it here because we definitely have a lot of awesome topics. I know the listeners are going to be um, super excited to hear about. So let's talk about you know employee engagement and employee experience as a first one. Uh, this is something you you write and certainly talk a lot about. So you know just as a general topic, um, you know why is employee engagement such a problem right now? I guess it would be my first question. Well, I think it's because of how we've built our organizations. We've built them on top of this mentality that employees are cogs, that managers are slave drivers, and that work has to suck. Those are actual synonyms that you would find in the dictionary, by the way, if you looked those words up. And so we've built our companies on top of those principles and ideas that employees are expendable, that managers control on all the information and kind of crack the whip, and that work needs to be uh, the daily grind or the, the struggle. So... Since we've built our organizations on top of that mentality, um, engagement was never a priority. Nobody cared about innovation, engagement, inspiration, you know, health and well-being, you know, give me a break. Like, that was never a topic of discussion. And so today, it finally is. And so now we're kind of stuck in that, um, uh, trying to figure out how to change our companies. And I think that's why engagement is such a problem today, because we've 
just been trained and we've built our companies on outdated ways of working. Do you think that has a lot to do with sort of hierarchies and how sort of traditional businesses were built, say, years ago? Is that, is that where some of the engagement problem comes from, do you think? Uh, some of it, yeah. You know, there are some hierarchical companies out there that have great engagement as well. You know, hierarchy, I'm not a big fan of the strict kind of pyramid hierarchy. I think that is, uh, as an organizational structure, is something that we're moving away from, something that's starting to disappear. But some hierarchy, some structure, I think, is um, is good. But having kind of that, that very linear pyramid, I think, is what we're moving away from. Definitely. So you've talked about three environments that create the employee experience? What, what are those three environments? So the three environments that impact every employee experience are the technological environment, which are the tools that you use, the devices, the software, the computers, any technology you use to get your job done. Uh, it could be internal social networks, video conferencing, uh, whatever those things are. The second is the physical environment. That's the space in which you actually work. Uh, is it a cubicle? Is it a coffee shop? You know, what does the physical environment actually look like? Who's around you? What is around you? Um, and the third is the cultural environment. And that is um, not what you can see, but it's how you feel. It is uh, the vibe that you get from the organization. It is the, the sense of purpose that you might feel. It is all those different types of things. Absolutely. So I guess just to, to unpack that a bit more in terms of HR, I know, you know, recently I listened to your work and your discussion with um, with gentlemen over at Airbnb, and there's really this disruption happening in HR. Why do you think it's so ripe for disruption and what's going on within the HR department at, uh, right now? So at, at Airbnb, I spoke with uh, Mark Levy, who runs their um, employee experience practice. He's actually the, one of the few chief employee experience officers that um, I've ever come across. And I think HR is ripe for disruption for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, HR used to be primarily focused on process and legal and hiring and firing. It was uh, focused on these kind of traditional um, practices of kind of filling uh, filling seats that your organization needed. And today we're starting to see HR evolve uh, into a role that is focused on designing these experiences. So it's focused on um, looking beyond just bringing in people. It's focused on how to create what Pat Waters, uh, the chief human resource officer of LinkedIn, calls uh, beautiful employee experiences, creating beautiful employee experiences. And actually, the role and the title of HR is disappearing. It's shifting towards talent, towards uh, you know, chief people officer, head of people management. Employee experience titles are cropping up. So even the the name HR is being phased out and moving to uh, to something else. And it's time. I mean, the the world of work is changing. So the way that we think about uh, HR and people, I think, also needs to change. Absolutely. That's definitely, it's definitely super interesting. I think, you know, the title's disappearing. It's just this whole blend with uh, how companies need to adapt right now, which obviously we're going to talk about uh, quite a bit in a second in terms of change management and, and things like that. But HR definitely d does have to be that catalyst, I think. They have to be the ones that sort of, you know, with their involvement around the experiences and how certainly technology and the workplace is evolving, that's, it kind of has to be on them. And, and, you know, and they tend to be the one that's, that's sort of slower to change. Um, in many cases. 
So let's jump to the book. Obviously, your book, The Future of Work, really the topic of today. Um, you know, what made you want to write this book in general? Well, I thought there was a, uh, a gap uh, in the space around um, themes related to the future of work. So um, when I wrote the book, conceptually, the future of work was talked about, but there wasn't um, much context provided specifically around what it's going to look like, how managers are going to change, how employees are going to change, how companies are going to change the way that they're structured. So I thought, as, uh, I, I thought that was an opportunity to actually come in and add some much-needed dialogue and context to what all of this stuff actually means and what it looks like. And, and that's pretty much why I wrote the book. Awesome. So what, what was the process like? I'm curious. I know a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are definitely interested in getting sort of blogging, get, starting to, to really put themselves out there more. Like what, what is the process of writing a book? Like how, that must have been such an undertaking. Like maybe break that down a little bit for us. Yeah, I mean, writing a book is uh, is never easy. Um, my first book was uh, came out in 2012 with McGraw Hill, and that was actually a a larger book. It was 340 pages, and that one was much more. Um, I don't want to say strategic. It was much more uh, niche. It was much more in depth around how to make collaboration work within your company. So there was a lot more frameworks and models and stuff like that uh, that was in there. Um, but the process is never easy. Uh, I mean, you have to know what you want to talk about. And for me, um, with the future of work, I had a lot of ideas. So the, the process is simple. I mean, you start off with an outline first, to, you know, what you want to say. Um, and then you kind of just fill in the blanks. Um, and of course, there depends if you want to go with a publisher, or if you want to self-publish or, you know, what your goal of writing the book is. Um, but for me, it was just having this outline of ideas that I want to create and setting aside time to do it and just what I like to call filling in the blanks. Definitely. Did it start from um, any blog content at all for you? Is that sort of what began crystallizing the book or was it truly that process of setting an outline and, and just sort of hammering through the creation of the chapters? Was it more sequential in that, in, from that perspective? You know, I'm trying to think if I had any blog posts that were related to this when it came out. Um, you know, I've definitely written about the future of work extensively before the book came out. Um, so I'm sure that probably inspired me and gave me some kind of starting content to build off of. Um, but, but most of it was just kind of, uh, you know, when you submit a proposal to a publisher, you have to have your well thought out outline already created. So, um, when submitting that proposal, I had to think through all that sort of stuff already. Definitely. So to kick things off, you mentioned trends that are shaping the future of work. So maybe we can talk about a few. The first one you mentioned is is new behaviors. So what what, do you, what behaviors are you seeing in, uh, as that trend? Like what's the main stuff that you, you were talking about there? So new behaviors in terms of uh, how we live, how we work, uh, you know, we're much more comfortable living in a public life right now. <laughs> I always tell people, if I were to uh, come up to you on the street 10 years ago and find you and say, hey, guess what? One day I'm going to know everything about you. Uh, you would probably think that I'm nuts. But today we live in a world where you can Google anybody. We have our entire professional histories on LinkedIn. We share information about ourselves on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, we're very, very public people. 
And so this has resulted in all sorts of new behaviors as far as how we communicate, how we collaborate, how we purchase products, how we share information. I mean, all these new behaviors happen right under our nose. Um, and so these are all new behaviors that organizations now have to think about and figure out how to bring into their organization and how to adapt to. So those are some of the new behaviors that we're starting to see. And of course, it's all fueled by social technologies. It's all fueled by the web, all fueled by that good stuff that we're so used to. And we're going to jump into technology as a core topic in a little bit. So we'll, we'll leave that one for now. But Let's talk a bit more about the the cog, the, you know, today's employee. Before we talk about kind of what the future employee looks like, let's talk a bit more about today's employee and in that sense. So you me- you mentioned the cog a bit earlier. Let's talk about that a bit more. So what's what's the day in the life of a sort of current employee look like, and why is that a, a challenge for a lot of organizations? Well, you know, thankfully today we're seeing uh, an evolution of what that kind of a uh, typical day looks like, but. You know, when most people think of a full-time job or an employee working for somebody, you think of, uh, you know, you probably wake up at six or seven, depending if you have kids, you eat something, you get dressed, uh, you go to your commute, which depending on where you work is 45 minutes or an hour and a half, get to work, you sit in a cubicle, you check your email, you go to some meetings, you uh, check your email again, you kind of sit, do some project work in your cubicle, uh, take a lunch break. You know, it's very monotonous. It's very drone-like. It's very um, uninspiring, unmotivating, and it's very cookie cutter and it's very formulaic. Everybody shows up at the same time. Everybody sort of wears the same thing. Everybody takes a break at the same time. It's very... Um, you can codify it, like you can write that down, like you, you're putting together IKEA furniture, and so that is the, the the standard way that we think about work. And I think that is what is disappearing. That is now what's being shattered, uh, and I think it's a great thing that we're starting to see. Definitely. And so the future employee. Let's talk a bit about that. What are the principles, or what is the the life of the future employee going to look like in the next in the next ten years? So the future employee, I talk about quite a few uh, uh, principles, seven principles of the future em- uh, employee. Um, um, but seven principles of the future employee essentially looks at um, seven qualities or key traits or characteristics, whatever you want to call them, of how we're going to work in the future. And uh, it's everything from having a flexible environment to being able to customize your work, uh, sharing information, learning and teaching at will, Uh, using new ways to communicate and collaborate. This notion that any employee within the company can become a leader and shifting from what I like to call knowledge workers to learning workers. And this kind of transformation of the employee is what we're starting to see. Uh, And it's something that organizations have to do if they want to be able to attract and retain top talent. So I guess on that same note around management and leadership, we have a lot of people that listen to the show that are, you know, in the early stages of starting their own business, their own startup, definitely read those those management books from from say the past what what's outdated about what's happening sort of in the management side of things right now what what are you seeing with with some of your clients or the organizations that's a bit of a problem in that area well a lot of a lot of it's outdated uh, command and control fear based mentality managers controlling all of the information employees having to serve the manager Uh, All that sort of stuff is outdated, and it's an outdated way of thinking about management and thinking about work. Uh, So I think those are all things that are um, that are now starting to change. You know, managers now are practicing 
collective intelligence. Managers are now practicing servant-based leadership. Managers are now pushing information and authority down to employees. And so I think we're starting to see this great transformation of of managers being forced to become uh, leaders. I always say that any manager you have at your company, all managers must be leaders. And I think that's what we're starting to see. So freelancer economy, that's obviously a big topic, something you've talked about, you know, certainly in your writing um, quite a bit. What, what's the impact that this freelancer or the gig economy is going to have um, over, the next, over the next number of years? Well, so first of all, people need to realize that the freelance and the gig economy is not as big as most people think. Uh, you know, the reports that claim that we're all going to be freelancers by 2020 or that 53 million Americans are currently freelancers are, are BS. Um, <coughs> those reports are phrased in a way um, and they're generated by um, kind of special interest groups that have a vested interest in having high numbers there. But those reports, the way that they frame the questions is they ask if you have done any type of kind of freelance work in the past year. And if you answer yes, then you're bucketed into that category as being a freelancer. Now, just because you've done something once in the past year doesn't mean that you fit into that category of other types of people that do it uh, all the time. And so that's why we get these very high, these very inflated numbers um, with not a lot of context around it. Now, if we were to revise that and say, well, by 2020, 40% of Americans will have tried some form of freelance work that makes much more sense than saying 40% of Americans are going to be freelancers by 2020. Uh And so um, the gig economy, the freelancer economy is growing. Uh, I think it's an exciting space to watch, but I don't think we need to kind of overhype it and assume that we're all going to be freelancers in the next few years because that's not going to happen. It's almost like being able to just utilize, you know, the different, the different ways that people are wanting to work. Some people, you know, there, there's a lot of remote stuff happening. People are wanting to work sort of on the fly with a certain skills, um, which we'll talk about in a bit as well around the skills for the future. But I think it's Odesk and Freelancer, these different sites just give you the access, you know, the accessibility and certainly with technology, you know, you can hire people with different, with different skill sets and, and you can really take advantage of that um, from that respect. Um, Okay, so let's talk about, just to finish off, sort of core final um, piece to the book was around really the whole organization. So we talked about the employee, talked about the management, what that looks like, and then, you know, the overall organization. You mentioned, you know, there's a number of key, key principles. Again, we're not going to go into all of them because everyone needs to pick up your book. But I'll just talk, let's just talk about a couple. So, you know, you mentioned the connected workforce, and that kind of leads us into our next topic around technology. But what do you mean around connected workforce and why is that a principle of the future organization? So connected workforce is this idea that any employee should be able to get their jobs done anywhere, anytime and on any device. A connected workforce is one where all of your employees can get access to each other and information that they need to get their jobs done without any restrictions, without any boundaries. So it's quite uh, simply what it sounds like, a can get access to everything that they need. And uh, that's a, a big area of opportunity. You know, right now, within a lot of organizations, they can't find the right people. They can't find the right information. They don't know who to go to to get help. They can't uh, publicly tap into the collective intelligence of the organization. So having this type of a connected company, this connected workforce, I think is, uh, is huge. 
So I know you talk to a lot of people at really large organizations. I've been a listener to your podcast for quite some time and you have guys on that are, are just really managing massive businesses globally. And so one of the principles you mentioned is operating like a small company. How is that, how is that possible when you're working in a large organization or leading a large organization? And what do you mean by, by that? So small companies typically move faster. There's less bureaucracy. They make decisions quicker. And so operate like a small company means just because you're large doesn't mean you need to operate like, uh, you know, like you're this massive behemoth. And there are a couple of good examples of companies that do this. I mean, GE is a massive company and they have something called FastWorks, which is a way for employees to quickly provide feedback and ideas to each other uh, in a rapid way. Uh, they've teamed up with Eric Reese to implement lean startup methodologies within the organization. Whirlpool, <clears throat> again, giant company, 80,000 employees. Uh, but they have an entire innovation practice that is embedded within the organization that makes innovation every single employee's job where they can contribute ideas and see those ideas uh, turned into products or services that the company might implement. And so this idea of operating like a small company means just because you're big doesn't mean you have to be slow and doesn't mean you need to ha uh, doesn't mean you have to be plagued with bureaucracy and doesn't mean that you can't be as agile and nimble as a smaller organization. So uh, be big, but think small. Absolutely. So you also mentioned this idea of innovation from anywhere. And I'm curious that, you know, you talk about creating ecosystems. Is that related to technology or is that related to content creation? What do you mean when you when you say that? So in most organizations, innovation typically comes from um, a select few group of people. You have an R&D department. They're probably locked away somewhere within the basement. They don't see a lot of fresh air. And that core group of people is responsible for coming up with all the ideas for the entire company. Um, building innovation ecosystems means that you leverage not just a few people to drive innovation, but you leverage all of your employees. You leverage your customers. You leverage your competitors. You leverage your partners. You leverage the general public. You leverage your suppliers. Innovation can't just come from a few people that sit within the walls of your company. They have uh, Innovation has to come from anywhere. And that's what this idea of building innovation ecosystems means. That's awesome. Yeah, you definitely see that with a lot of the, even the large organizations. I know you just mentioned a couple of them. They definitely focus on that. I think that's really the difference, right? They, they focus on crowdsourcing information. They're democratizing the learning and the teaching, which I know is another one of the principles that you mentioned there as well. So let's move on from that. We can definitely come back to it. Um, in terms of technology, so obviously that's a, there's so much technology going on right now. A lot of companies, I know I face this in, in my day-to-day -day as well, where a lot of companies are like, well, I'm not a technology company. I'm not working that fast. You know, I, I don't need to do all this stuff. You've, you've argued that every company is a technology company. What, what do you mean uh, and, and how do you explain that? Today, especially, yes, every company is a technology company. Uh, not too long ago, I went to go visit a company called Mission Bell, which specializes in reclaimed wood manufacturing. And so I went to go visit their company and I met with their CEO and he says, you know, we're not a reclaimed wood uh, or a manufacturing company. We're a technology company that just happens to be in reclaimed wood. And I think that's the mentality that a lot of organizations need to think of. Um, you're not a pharma company. You're a technology company that happens to be in pharma. Uh, you're not a... Um, uh, a manufacturing company, you're a technology company that happens to be in manufacturing. Uh, technology is at a point where it's fueling and driving every aspect of how work gets done, of how people work, of, of even how we live. 
And so for people to say that they are not a technology company, I think is a bit uh, naive and ignorant to the fact that technology plays such a central role in uh, how work gets done that we all have to accept the fact that we are all now in the technology business. We are now all in the technology um, area and we're all technology companies. Super important. And you've also called it, you know, this idea of the central nervous system. So what do you mean by that and how are companies sort of building out this nervous system from what you've seen? So it's a central nervous system uh, because, and it's around collaboration technologies as well. Um, the central nervous system is what enables the uh, kind of communication and collaboration to happen. And so technology is what enables, it's what empowers uh, all of these concepts around the future of work to happen. Uh, you can't have flexible work, real-time feedback, uh, getting rid of annual reviews. You can't have that, that stuff if you don't have the technology components in place to support it. So that's why I look at technology as the central nervous system that actually enables a lot of these themes around the future of work. And so to the importance of internal communication and collaboration you mentioned. So I know there's a lot of organizations out there and even people listening, they're trying to they're trying to figure out there's a lot of challenges there, certainly as this the scale that what are you seeing? You know, you mentioned G Whirlpool. What what do they have in place or what do you see that sort of is the magic of that central nervous system? Is there is there anything that they do, any practices? Is it the fact that their senior leadership really is in, involved with the technology? Is that a key thing? What sort of keys do you see to actually making this technology work inside these large companies? Sure, all of the above. I mean, I uh, I have something that I like to call the 12 highly habits or the 12 habits of highly collaborative organizations. And uh, <clears throat> it's something that anybody can Google to get the image. And I talk about 12 things. Uh, you know, leading from example is definitely, or leading by example is definitely one of them. Uh, learning to get out of the way is a huge one. Uh, in other words, just letting employees um, use the technologies in ways that they think are effective instead of you telling them how they should be using technologies. Uh, so there are a lot of things that I think are crucial to make technology effective. Um, definitely having that leadership support is important. Uh, using technologies that are modern uh, are important. If you're using legacy technologies in a modern company, then that doesn't make any sense. Um, having the physical space that supports the technology environment that you're trying to create, also crucial. In other words, if you're trying to um, enable collaboration and get people to talk to each other and share Meanwhile, the physical space that people work in is the exact opposite of uh, of that. You know, it's cubicles. Nobody's talking. Everybody's just kind of in their own little world. Um, people won't use the technologies. So all the things that you mentioned, plus some of the things that I mentioned, plus the, you know, the 12 habits of highly collaborative organizations, I think are all crucial uh, to helping make uh, technology successfully operate as the central nervous system. That's great. Um, and I'll definitely point people to that that post. I know I'd read that a little while ago as well. So let's let's move to social media. Obviously, that's a big topic. I know even recently you were talking to um, you know the chief information officer at GE about you know impact of governance and managing risk and bring your own devices and things of that nature. But you know what? How do how do you think about social media when it comes to within an organization? Obviously, there's the personal life, there's the professional life. Like, what's the impact and and how do you see uh, companies best managing it or, or utilizing it with their with their large amount of employees? Uh, I think that we we used to have a lot of debates around the role of social media and should social media be allowed? Should it not be allowed? I think those debates have fallen a little bit by the wayside. 
most organizations that I am familiar with have kind of um, allowed social to take shape and have allowed social to kind of uh, be used by uh, by employees. Uh, the global uh, chief security information officer of Deloitte actually encourages people to use social, and he's big on encouraging social inside and outside of the organization. And so I think we're finally at that point where uh, we're realizing that it's not something that you can block. It's not something that you can get rid of. It's something that employees are going to use. So you might as well encourage them, enable them, provide guidelines around it, but don't try to um, shut it off. Definitely. And that's, I think that's hugely important, especially with the millennials as well. And I think I can, we, I would love to jump to that topic in, in terms of the generational gap. Cause I know, you know, you've, you've written about this as well in terms of the different generations in the workforce and, and sort of how this, this generational gap needs to be closed. So how, you know, why is that important? Why is it important that organizations think about closing this gap um, right now? Well, the generational gap is, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, either exists or doesn't exist. Um, but basically, it refers to the fact that there are so many generations that are um, working together in their organizations, you know, five generations now. You know, we have to remember that this isn't the first time that uh, we've had multiple generations working together in the same company. So it's, it's not a, a, a new thing. Uh, the second is that studies have been done which show that uh, millennials are actually very, very similar to other employees that you have within the company. In other words, if you were to uh, get rid of all the millennials that you have in your company, you'd still have a lot of people that care about flexible work and doing meaningful work, that care a lot about the types of things that are usually just uh, reserved for millennials. So I think that what we should be doing and what we should be focusing on is not so much on age as much as it should be on attitudes and values and expectations. And so what I mean by that is that the future employee can be anybody, whether they're 22 or 62. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what are your thoughts on sort of promoting and, and, and the way the views, I guess, the values you just mentioned within these large organizations, right? I think it's, it's been a, right now it's an interesting time. I know I'm, I'm a millennial myself and, and it was sort of seeing where, say, the C-suite in a large organization and, and where this whole transition is taking place, like that generational gap. Like, how do you, how do you see in your discussions with many of these leaders, how are they really empowering or, or seeing sort of the millennial or, or utilizing the millennial workforce in the right way? Well, I wouldn't say that they're, um, I mean, I guess they are doing some things differently, but a lot of the uh, chief talent and chief human resource officers that I speak with are uh, very positive and very bullish about millennials. And they actually have millennials that are having and taking senior uh, level roles with their, within their respective organizations. Mm. Um, so, you know, I see it as a positive. I think the influx of millennials and Generation Z is part of what's forcing organizations to change the way they think about work. Uh, but as far as how they deal with millennials and manage real roles, um, you know, just like anybody else, uh, it's, uh, if somebody's qualified for the job, they're doing a good job. They're kind of kicking ass at whatever they need to do and they get promoted then, uh, good for them. But a lot of managers that are currently retiring cause they're older, you know, guess who's taking their jobs? Millennials. So I think we'll also see a lot of younger managers and senior leaders within our organizations. Yeah, certainly. So let's talk about transparency um, for a second. Obviously, a big topic right now, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are even publishing 
you know, salaries and, and equity stake and, and things like that out there. But how, how transparent, you know, does an organization need to be in your opinion uh, in today's world? I don't think there's a one size fits all approach for organizations. I think that, um, I think there's definitely levels of this. Uh, so how organization should your uh, transparent should your company be? Well, as comfortable as it is, um, as transparent as is comfortable for the company. I mean, if you are confident and comfortable opening up everything and your employees are okay with that, then hey, go for it. But don't do things just for the sake of doing things. You have to do things because they make sense. You have to do things because your employees are okay with it. They're on board with it. Um, if you're an employee at a company and you're not okay with them releasing salary information <clears throat> and all of a sudden they open it up, and that's an example where transparency might not be the best thing, right? Because it, it, it hurts you as a, as a person and you don't want people to know these things about you. So transparency to me is a dialogue. It's a two-way street between the organization and the employees that work there. And I think it's a little bit of a negotiation and a compromise between how transparent an organization um, can be with how transparent uh, of an organization employees want it to be. I think it's interesting where... You know, you see companies like Buffer, there's some of these newer startups that are like to this, the furthest extreme of transparency, which is certainly interesting and gets a lot of press because of that. They're kind of publishing everything out there and it's this completely open um, side of it. And then there's obviously the other organizations that are in this state of change management and they're kind of, there's still that, that challenge with leadership where it's sort of closed off. People aren't communicating and it's, it's more of what we talked about and what you talked a lot about in your book um, as well. So recently, I thought it was really interesting. You talked about, um, there's a topic lately about how long does it take to get your company in shape and kind of made the parallels between working out and, uh, you know, changing your body, so to say, and similar to, to where an organization changes. So maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that. Like, what, what, were, you, what were you referencing when, when you talked about that? So... I, I equate, and I think Simon Sinek uh, used this analogy. I, I think it was him. It could have been somebody else, but I, I could have sworn I saw somebody using a similar analogy for uh, uh, for leadership or something along those lines. But you know, when you work out, if you and I, I work out quite a bit. You know, I'm pretty active. I do a lot of sports, and right after you work out, if you look in the mirror, you don't notice change. It's not like you lift weights and all of a sudden you look like uh, old Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? That doesn't yeah. happen. Um, so if somebody were to say, well, how long is that going to take? Well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on uh, your starting point. It depends on what your goals are. It depends on what your habits are. And it depends on what you consider great shape. It's one of those things where you don't know how long it's going to take, but you know you need to do it because you need to get in shape. And over time, you gradually, slowly start to see results. But it takes time and it takes commitment. And after you get to whatever your desired state is, you need to maintain it. So you have to keep working out. And so I like to think of the future of work as kind of this one giant workout for your company that never stops. I mean, it's intense, but it's also important. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really like that. And I think, you know, for me, I'm an athlete in my past as well, you know, play professional hockey and sort of thinking about the idea of working out and sort of the pain involved. It, it is so similar, right? There's great parallels there where I always like to think about you're kind of climbing a mountain, right? When you get to the top, the, the boulder sort of falls easier from there. Um, it's always painful to get there. But as soon as you do, everything gets a lot easier. And that's the way businesses need to be thinking as well. You know, they have to be willing to put yep. in the work around change. They need to be, you know, supporting their people that way so that things do, 
you know, get easier, things do get more innovative and, and ultimately everything flows from there. So on the, on that topic, I guess let's talk about future-proofing your career. Obviously a lot of um, listeners here are really a big thing we're trying to boil down for them is how to, how to think about what's happening. There's a lot of change they're adapting to, you know, what the job market is like, you know, um, both individually and maybe a company that they're building. So what skills, you know, what skills do you think people need to focus on for the future of work? What's the most important stuff they should be looking at uh, building? I think the, the most important skill is learn how to learn. Uh, I always say that the, to be the smartest person in the room, all you need is a smartphone. And so if we all have smartphones, we all have access to the web, we all have access to content and information, well, how does one person stand out from the rest? Well, if you learn how to learn new things and apply those things that you're learning to new environments and scenarios and situations, all of a sudden you have a leg up from everybody else. And so I think that is what we need to learn how to do. <clears throat> you have to learn how to learn new things. And I think that's the number one thing that I would suggest and recommend. And it's also the number one thing that I keep hearing the chief human resource officers would suggest and recommend as well. That's it's huge. There's just so much coming out. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of roles these days, depending on the organization. It's very, you know, it's very important that you can, that you can adapt and you can learn yourself. There is so much information and you can learn things on YouTube. You can watch videos and it's being able to kind of pull that all together and, and make use of it in a, in a fast way. And so being able to teach yourself to learn um, with the different mediums is, is hugely important to having success really in any role. Um, you had a video um, that I watched recently around why everyone needs to be more social. I think you're actually at Dreamforce. You know, I love those future and five. I'll link to it uh, in the post as well. But wh why does everyone need to be more social? Why do you think that's important? Well, I think it's uh, it's crucial because <clears throat> it's how you build your your personal brand uh, by being social. Um, and I know that's kind of a um, it's a it's an interesting word because you know social has been around for a, a while and we've heard of this concept of being social for oh I don't know six eight years now it's been a while um, but being social is what I like to think of as uh, building your brand and what that means is building up your network becoming a thought leader um, and and getting your name out there. So being social is how, for example, I was able to build my business and get two book deals and, and uh, you know, get a speaking career out of it. It's because that is uh, what I did. I, you know, shared my thoughts and ideas through social channels. I blogged. I did videos. I did podcasts. I wish I would have been even more social when I started off years ago. So being social is crucial if you want to be able to build up this personal brand for yourself. Personal brand is a big topic. You know, we talk about a lot with our, our clients at Postpion in terms of the employee, the empowered employee and the fact that the organizations are now realizing that their people, you know, people just, it's this endless thing that's sort of working for you. And I think you just nailed it there, right? In terms of the work that you've done and being able to build up everything you do is, is based on that. You, it's sort of something that's, that's always on, right? And sort of matches your, your offline persona, you know, into this online world. And a lot of people are going to be able to, to find you. They're going to discover the work you do. It's going to be that much more um, you know, that accessibility to the, to the stuff that you have going on is just that much more, more there and, and more findable. So that really helps you drive your career in different areas you may want to go. And I think that's definitely important for everyone listening. Um, so 
why don't we talk um, a little bit about business design? So just organize on the organization side of future proofing. So we've talked certainly about this a bit earlier, but new, you know, net new entrepreneur just started a startup, you know, how and we talked a bit about hierarchies and leadership, but like when they're starting out designing, they're hiring their first few employees, like how, what are some things they, they should be thinking about when it comes to what's happening in the future and what sort of this new millennial or the generation wants um, with their day to day? Well, I would say uh, the simplest and easiest thing to always do there is talk to your employees. Uh, don't make assumptions. Don't make business decisions based on what somebody else is doing and based on what you've read. Uh, have a conversation with your employees and say, look, we're building a company here. What do you care about? What do you value? Um, how can I create a place where you are comfortable providing feedback when uh, when I need it, where we can have this two-way dialogue? And that's probably, honestly, the simplest and most practical piece of advice that I can give anybody is have that conversation with the people that work there and find out from them what they care about, what they value, what they expect, and open up that two-way street. That's really sound advice. That's awesome. Great. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about, we always like to talk about productivity. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of this general catch-all topic, but a lot of people we found in, are interested in, in how people stay so productive. You know, you have a lot of stuff going on. You do your YouTube videos, your podcast, your, your traveling, your speaking engagements. You know, how do you like to stay productive? Is there any sort of routines or, or habits um, that you find are really impactful to, to sort of, you know, operating at the pace that you do? Well, I mean, I can tell you, you know, usually when I wake up, uh, depending on what that time is between seven and eight, uh, first thing I do, I go for a one mile walk with my wife and our two dogs. So don't check email. Um, don't look at a computer screen or anything like that until, uh, usually after breakfast. And yeah, I check email once a day at four o'clock Pacific standard time. So anything before that, um, I, I don't look at, I have an assistant that if there's an emergency, she can notify me, but she's never had to do that before. So uh, that has helped. Um, listening to upbeat music definitely helps. And listening to my body has been probably the most effective thing. If I feel burned out and tired and exhausted, I can't force myself to write an article. I can't force myself to do a podcast or a video. So you have to understand how your body works, how your mind works, and optimize the times when you are fresh and when you are ready. Um, I think another thing to consistently stay productive is to challenge yourself, is to do new things. Uh, the podcast is something I started a year ago. Uh, the video series, I think, is something I started less than a year ago. I'm going to be doing a course for Udemy soon on the future manager. So I'm constantly trying to um, do new things uh, to keep me excited, to keep me invigorated, to keep me um, wanting to, to to wake up and do what I do. So you have to make it exciting uh, and not boring. And the best way to do that is to challenge yourself in new ways whenever you can. Um, that, that has ultimately been very helpful. Uh, I use Asana to keep track of uh, tasks, especially when communicating with my designers. Yeah. Uh, and probably the most effective productivity tip has been to offload as much stuff as you can to other people. Um, so, you know, I, I run, I mean, Although I'm a, a speaker and I run stuff myself, I you know I have freelancers that I work with, and I completely empower them and support them to do everything that they can and and need to do on their own. 
And so I, I try to offload as much work as I possibly can onto them so that I can focus on the core things that I need to actually uh, run my business. That's great. Um, is there anything in terms of, you know, the content creation, just as a general topic, you create a lot of different types of content, you know, it's <clears> video, it's audio, it's writing. Is there, in terms of thinking up, you know, if it's ideas, things like that, I know, um, in, you know, we've talked a, a bunch lately about this idea of thinking time and I've seen an, a, a number of, of, of people mention this in their writing, um, you know, be it on medium or anywhere else that I, I tend to frequent, but this idea that you need time to think a lot of, you know, everything's so busy, everything seems you didn't, you just talked about obviously taking the morning walk, how that's important, but how do you, how do you come up with ideas or what is your ideal sort of, um, process for doing that? Cause you have a lot of, you know, great, great things that you talk about in your videos and there's a lot of ideation going on there. Do you find you have to carve out specific time for that? Or is that something that comes more naturally to you uh, all ongoing? No, I don't carve out specific time. Um, you know, in fact, the one thing that I wish I could do is uh, spend more time reading books. You know, I have a lot of great books that I've downloaded on Kindle that I wish I could, um, spend more time reading, but no, I don't carve out specific time. Uh, you know, maybe I should, I get ideas that pop into my head. I get ideas from conversations that I have with these executives on podcasts, from conferences that I speak at, from things that I notice uh, organizations are doing, um, from something that I might read in the news. Um, so I always <clears throat> like to think of, of new ways to kind of challenge myself. Sometimes it's a question that I might have that I don't know how to answer that I then kind of try to force myself how to answer. Yeah, no, definitely. That's great. Well, I'd love to point uh, some recommendations out for everyone. We always like to point to any in the show notes. Maybe, maybe some of those books on your Kindle. Do you have any, any we, any we could point people to? Well, let me look at my Kindle, and then I will tell you. Uh, let's see here. Um, so there are a couple books that I haven't. Um, well, I guess I can name off the ones that I haven't finished reading, and also the ones that I uh, kind of am in the process of reading. Um, so. I started reading a book called Super Forecasting, uh, mm -hmm. The Art and Science of Prediction, which is pretty interesting. Um, I also, which book did I just finish reading? I love sci-fi books. So I have a lot of sci-fi books that are non-business related. Anything by Isaac Asimov, I love. Um, there was a book on here <clears throat> that I really did enjoy. I'm trying to find which one it was. You know, I have, for example, on here, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, which I haven't gotten to yet. Um... Turn the Ship Around by uh, David Marquet is a good book. Uh, what else is on here? Rise of the Robots. Again, I haven't got to yet. What Technology Wants, I haven't got to yet. <clears throat> the New Geography of Jobs is a company uh, is a book that I have that I haven't gotten to yet. Um, so there's a lot on here uh, that I haven't gotten to. Exponential Organizations I thought was a great book um, as well. So definitely check that one out. Yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. That's awesome. So I guess in terms of other, you know, guilty pleasures, are you, is there any, any other, any specific blogs or websites, you know, outside of say the books that, that you really find yourself going to, um, for, for inspiration or just general, general interest? Um, not really. I mean, the only thing that I scan occasionally is Flipboard. So I yep. use Flipboard and I have sort of my, uh, topics that are segmented there that I stream through. But um, aside from that, I don't have any like go-to blogs or anything like that, no. And last but not least, what's on? what kind of apps and what stuff are on your home screen on your phone? What stuff do you, <clears throat> do you find yourself 
in the most from uh, from that perspective? Uh, well, I travel a lot, so I have Uber on here. My United app is on here. Um, probably the one that I use most is digitally imported radio for uh, electronic music while I'm working. That's awesome. always up there. Yeah. I have a chess chess app, so whenever I'm bored, I'm kind of playing chess on there. Um, I'd say those are the ones that I use the most. Awesome. Well, is there any other um, any other links? Obviously, we'll we'll link to the future the future organization, your awesome website, lots of great stuff there for people to check out. We'll link to your Twitter as well. Is there anywhere else that we should uh, anywhere else people should can find you online? Uh, yeah, I mean, if they want to subscribe to the newsletter, they can uh, text the word future to the number which is 44222 so if they text the number future to 44222 uh, that'll add them to the newsletter where they'll get um, sort of my latest ideas and insights around how the workplace is changing um, or they can just visit thefutureorganization.com you know that's my website that's uh, typically where I live awesome well it's been a real pleasure Jacob I, I really appreciate your time and uh, I know everyone's going to love this one so thanks again and um, look forward to speaking with you soon Thanks for having me.